1: An agent at uh, CAA, the Hollywood agency, read it and called me up and said, uh, you know, you'd be interested, maybe writing for television because there's always a need for, you know, scripts and stories about espionage. And you seem to know how to tell those stories and have a little bit of insider knowledge about it. And I said, sure.
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is a native son of Chicago, whom this entire city can be very proud of, a true Renaissance man, Joe Weisberg, former CIA operative who left the intelligence profession to write about it and then become an award-winning author, writer, creator, and executive producer of the highly acclaimed and award-winning and absolutely terrific television series, The Americans. Joe, thank you so very much for joining us. This is a real treat for me.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Fran. It's nice to be here and uh, nice to talk to a Chicagoan. You know, as you and I were discussing earlier, I just have moved uh, back to New York City from upstate and I've been clearing out some space in my house for various things. And I ran into a couple of uh, great Chicago things. One is a uh, book by Bill Curtis about the death penalty. And then another is a wonderful book of photographs of Chicago sidewalks by Rick Cogan. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of great Chicagoans sort of milling around.
0: I absolutely loved your six-year series, *The Americans*, starring Matthew Rhys and Kerry Russell, as Russian spies living in the United States during the 1980s Cold War era of Ronald Reagan. When it ended, it was literally a void in my entertainment life. I felt almost like The Sopranos had ended. It was a thrilling series, edge of your seat and amazing. How did the son of Chicago's legendary special events director, Lois Weisberg, who really was a true visionary who gave us cows on parade and rehab, the cultural center and so on, and her husband national and your dad, nationally known civil rights attorney and former general counsel for the ACLU, Bernard Weisberg. How did that guy Become a CIA agent.
1: That's a good question. I'm still I'm still trying to come up with the answer myself. I think the uh, a couple of things maybe conspired. One is that both of my parents uh, had a pretty firm belief that you should try different things and do what you wanted to do, and not feel like you had to follow any sort of preordained path for yourself. So you know, my mother, for her part, you know, you mentioned some of her later jobs, but she used to joke that she liked to change jobs every seven years. It wasn't really a joke. She really did change jobs just about every every seven years. <laughs> and uh, my dad, who, you know, really wanted to be an attorney, that was his dream from the time I think he, he was pretty young. So he did what he wanted to do too. And, and that's, what, that's what he told us to do. I don't think they would have imagined that that would have involved me joining the CIA at any point. But, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Once once they taught the lesson, I, I picked it up and and I thought that seemed like a sort of a adventurous, fun thing to do and would allow me to kind of fight the Cold War, which I was something I believed in way back then in my in my youth. So that's kind of what happened.
0: Did you study intelligence and in the cold war at Yale? You've been quoted as saying you read John Le Le Carré novels when you were too young to be reading them and that you took them maybe too seriously. Were you joking about that?
1: No, not at all. That was really quite serious. You know, my father was a huge reader. You know, he never went anywhere without a book in his back pocket. And if he found himself standing in line for something, he didn't care because he would take the book out and start reading. He was a little bit with books like people now are with their phones. And uh, I was not a big reader. My brother also was a very big reader. My mother and I were more sort of, we wanted to kind of go out for coffee more than we wanted to read. So I, I didn't really start reading books until probably sixth or seventh grade when I picked up, when I started reading James Bond books and I thought those were pretty fun. And those led me to Le Carré books. And after reading James Bond books, if you read Le Carré books, you have the, I think, fairly common misperception that the Le Le Carré books are really realistic. That that's Le Carre does not himself claim that, but that's just, it's inescapable. You think, oh, this is how spycraft really works. And for a kid like me, it was enormously appealing because it was kind of a world in which, you know, intellectuals behind the scenes knew all the secrets and were pulling all the levers. So there are probably not too many other... Uh, People who would who would support that or give that idea any credence, but it was uh, it was what I sort of saw in the like books, and it seemed uh, mysterious and fun and exciting, and I wanted to do that.
0: And so, what was it like working for the CIA? Did it live up to your dreams, or did it did it be was it more clerical than less intelligence?
1: I like to tell the story that um, you know you you enter with a training class of other other people and the first thing they did with us was put us in a room for six weeks to study the bureaucracy of the CIA six weeks of organizational charts and, and you just sort of watch the fantasies and light go out of all our eyes one by <laughs> one so it, it was very bureaucratic but but it was also in a way a kind of a great place there was a lot of uh, you could take a lot of initiative and get a lot of responsibility even when you were still in training. And it was, it had a, it had an odd, maybe unexpected openness to it and certain sort of, you know, ways in which it was oddly kind of progressive. So I met great people there. I learned a lot. I saw some really interesting things after a couple of years and and training and everything it became reasonably clear to me that I did not want to be a spy. Um, Better, better to learn that uh, sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, Time Magazine
0: it, quoted you as saying that you saw your job was going to entail recruiting people who didn't provide much valuable intelligence, and that, uh, and yet they had to put their lives at great risk anyway, and you didn't feel good about that.
1: That is my, you know, perception. Now, it's only fair to say that a lot of people who work there, probably most, would disagree, and and would say that there's a lot of valuable intelligence being gathered it's also important to say that this was at this point now 30 years ago but so who knows what it's like then but from the from the work i did and the things i saw it was a, a lot of agents who were these were foreigners recruited to spy for the us government who didn't have anything really valuable to tell us
0: so you leave the cia you start working as a teacher at the summit school a private special ed high school in queens and then you helped them found the school newspaper, A Man After My Own Heart. So how <laughs> did you make the transition to writer? As I understand that you started by writing novels, not all of them, about the intelligence field.
1: That's right. And that was really before I went to work at the Summit School, I wrote uh, one novel about called 10th Grade, which was... A- you know a semi-autobiographical novel about a kid in new jersey you said you're from new jersey you might like it it's about a kid in new jersey high school and kind of his his adventures and then later when i was working at the summer school i wrote a spy novel and uh i had also always been a writer you know from the time i was really 12 i wrote and, and took it pretty seriously so it was not a it didn't really feel like any kind of a leap it just felt like you know working harder and more seriously it's something i'd always done
0: so were either of these novels successful?
1: It's a it's a good question how you define success for a for a novel. You know, they, I published them both, and and I think they you know sold reasonably well for novels that aren't selling that well. That would probably be a good way to put it. They were certainly not smash hits, but uh, they were well reviewed.
0: And your mom bought all the copies.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure she. I'm sure she had more than one box.
0: It was a novel. The uh, The Ordinary Spy was a novel about two embattled spies who go to extraordinary lengths to keep their informants out of harm's way. Was that your o- entree into TV?
1: It was uh, an agent at uh, CAA, the Hollywood agency, read it and called me up and said, uh, "You know, you'd be interested." maybe ready for television because there's always a need for you know scripts and stories about espionage and you seem to know how to tell those stories and have a little bit of insider knowledge about it and i said sure and i then spent you know a lot of time with i didn't really i didn't know anything about ready for television spent a lot of time with him learning from him how to develop a proposal and kind of put a show together and i initially uh pitched a pitched and sold a show, which was going to be about the CIA station in Bulgaria. Uh, and, and ended up selling that, writing a script for it. It did not get made. But it was, you know, at that point, I was working in Hollywood.
0: Was that a big disappointment? You write a script and it doesn't get made?
1: It's a, It was sort of confusing for me because, you know, I'd previously written novels that had not gotten published. And that was a huge disappointment. Hollywood is a funny place. If you sell a project, even if they don't, they don't make most stuff, they they buy and get a lot more stuff written than they make. So if you sell something and write it, even if it's not made, that's still considered success in Hollywood and you're still getting paid as well. So certainly I was disappointed, but I also had launched a, a whole new career that I was pretty excited about.
0: So your big break comes in 2010. That's when an FBI investigation revealed actually, really, that 10 Russian spies had been living undercover in American suburbs for more than a decade. At that point, DreamWorks asked you to write a show about that. And you say you were skeptical at first. Why were you skeptical?
1: I just thought that, you know, it just happened. It was this thing in the news. I didn't think it was it was interesting that Russia was still spying on us using these illegals which are people who are sent to live in foreign countries posing as actual citizens of those countries that was interesting but Russia didn't feel like any kind of a threat back then and I just sort of pictured this show of like you know the hero FBI agent chasing the Russian spies and I thought who cares and then I started you know but I didn't want to say no because it was potentially a good opportunity and I started sort of wandering the streets and thinking about it, and, and I, I had two kind of ideas that got me very excited. The first was that it, it should take place during the Cold War, because then the stakes were you know, much higher, and that was the Soviet Union was really considered our enemy. Um, and the other idea was that I should make the Soviet spies themselves the heroes, so there would be an FBI agent who was pursuing them, but he would not be really the hero of the show. It would be them. And once I, once I had those two pieces, I suddenly started to think it was something I really wanted to do.
0: And it was brilliant. You wrote a script for the Americans based on your conversations with former colleagues at the CIA and other research. It is the story, if anyone doesn't know, of Philip and Elizabeth Jennings, KGB spies living undercover as a married couple in a suburb of Washington, D.C., with two kids they actually had together just so they could look like an American family. And they're living in a townhouse complex near FBI agent Stan Beeman. So did you set out to make people like me sympathize with these KGB people?
1: Yes, that was the uh, a fundamental part of the concept was to make the KGB officers sympathetic and I, I didn't know, and I don't think the network knew if that was quite d- doable. There was a lot of anxiety that that was sort of a bridge too far. Um, but we also thought it was worth, worth taking a shot at. And in a funny kind of way, uh, nobody ever, I almost never heard anyone say that they had trouble sympathizing with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, we didn't have trouble sympathizing with the, the Corleones and the Godfather either, but in The Americans, Philip and Elizabeth have two teenage children who don't know about their secret life with all its disguises and disappearances. Is that real life realistic? I mean, the daughter Paige ultimately does find out, she tells her priest who the parents make disappear, and she ends up working for her parents. But is that what would happen if they were real life spies, do you think?
1: I'll give you a two-part answer. You know, that storyline, and I should say that, you know, the show, ultimately, that I made it with my partner, Joel Fields, and we spent six years making that show together. So I just want to, you know, mention him also as my uh, collaborator on the project. But the uh, part of the initial um, excitement of the idea for me, was that I knew all these people at the CIA who lied to their kids about what they did. And then eventually they told them once the kids were old enough to keep a secret. But there weren't any real guidelines about how to do that or when to do it or anything else. So so families, even of CIA officers who were not illegals, right? They were not living undercover in in a way that they necessarily would have you know, gone to jail if they had been caught. But it's a little bit complicated, a little more complicated than that. But anyway, that was something... Uh, They did, but a little more germane or exactly on your question is that of the 10 uh, Russian illegals who were arrested in 2010, it is, there's one of these families where it is almost certain that their teenage kids did not know what their parents did. And nobody really knows the answer to this question. Historically speaking, going back to the Soviet era, there does seem to be at least one or two cases where parents tried to recruit their kids into the service uh, once they were old enough, with the idea being that their kids would be natural born American citizens, their backstories would be much more uh, secure. They could maybe draw, you know, join the CIA or the FBI in a way that a first generation Russian illegal could not. So you know, I don't believe that, and as far as we know, I don't think anybody ever succeeded at that, but the idea uh, essentially came out of you know, the real history of espionage.
0: So much of the show is about the dynamic between the parents and the kids and about this staged marriage. Carrie Russell plays a loving mom who can be adoring and devoted to her kids in one minute, put on a disguise, lure somebody into bed and kill them the next. Is that how you set out to do it? I mean, how big of an element was that for you?
1: Pretty, Pretty big element. You know, again, part of the initial idea was that people would sort of be you know, like these people and care about them and be rooting for them, and then suddenly find themselves on their side and worried about them when they were doing these horrible things, and that that would be a kind of disconcerting and surprising experience for for an audience member. And so, uh, you know, the idea was to create that kind of, you know, confused, surprised feeling for the audience. And in a way, Philip was, um, for most people, more obviously relatable. So, for Philip, he was such a nice guy and he had so many doubts about what he did, whereas Elizabeth was a tough cookie and to some degree an ideologue. I don't, not, not completely, I don't think. But, you know, she believed completely in what she was doing and was willing to do whatever she had to, to to further her cause. And so the the kind of the distance she traveled from, you know, being like a loving, kind mother doing these horrible Things that she didn't have any doubts about was a was a pretty long distance and, and pretty, you know, at least we hoped fun to or interesting to watch.
0: You've said the show is more about marriage than espionage. Yeah,
1: what did you learn was, about
0: your own marriage doing this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no comment. That's a I've always done a, a no comment on that one, but I certainly, <clears throat> I certainly learned a lot about you know marriage in general because what what's think, the lesson. I think that in a way you want, I, I don't even think there is a lesson. I think that's maybe the not not exactly the way I would look at it. But I think I would say that marriages can uh, withstand a lot and deal with, a, I mean, these two people were very different. They had some things in common. They were very different, but they loved each other. And in a sense, their, their love and positive feelings were able to conquer some of the most difficult Circumstances two people could ever ever run into in their lives, and they also did it. You know, they could. They didn't necessarily say everything to each other or communicate. It, you know, all, we always talking about how important it is to communicate and be open, and I I certainly believe in that. But there was something else going on for these two that, you know, he had loved her forever. He had just always had this this love for her to some degree more than what she helped, felt helped, felt for him. But she grew into an equally strong love. So it it just, again, I'm talking in circles because there isn't actually a lesson, there's more a story. But I think the story is a couple starting out in different places and winding up in the same one.
0: The honeypot, the sex, Philip uses it with Martha, Elizabeth uses it time and again with her targets. Is that what really happens in real life spying? How much of it is offering people money and blackmailing them? How much of it is sex or even drugs or both? It's a complicated
1: question. Um, I don't believe the CIA uses or ever used sex at all, but the KGB did, and there's a pretty detailed and you know well-known history about it. And their officers were trained and told that that was one of the tools they had at their disposal. And we know of, we actually know of certain cases that took place that are shockingly similar to the Martha story where. A spy actually married – this happened in uh, Europe, not in the United States, but a KGB spy, spy married um, a woman at least once. I think it might have happened twice and lived a completely fake white life with them in order to steal secrets. Um, of uh, In a couple of cases, the wives found out. Um, in one of them, she was told at a police station and literally jumped out the window and killed herself when she found out. In another case, despite all the evidence, the woman wouldn't believe it. Which is equally understandable when you think of the how how extreme and desperate a thing that is to to do. But that was not made up out of whole cloth. Um, that was again, based on real espionage history, shocking though it may seem.
0: the character of Martha was really fascinating to me. She's working at the FBI. She helps Philip has an affair with him and actually marries him, as, as I recall, and she ends up being protected and sent to the Soviet Union. I kept wanting you to bring her back into the series, but you never did, why not?
1: Well, I would say we visited, We did visit with her in the yeah, Soviet Union. Yeah, but you Union. didn't bring her back um, as the main character. Yeah, there was really no way to do it once she was there. You know, her her career as a spy was over, her relationship with Philip was over, so we just didn't have any kind of narrative narrative way. We used to occasionally talk about doing a whole separate show about her life in the Soviet Union, which might have, been a, might have been a fun thing to do. But, you know, our audience is not the largest to begin with, and we might have cut it down <laughs> too substantially if we'd done that.
0: One of the fascinating elements about The Americans was the way Philip Fell in love with American life. He wanted to break free and maybe stay here while Elizabeth remained ever loyal to Mother Russia and wanted her kids to do the same. She finds it difficult seeing them being raised as Americans.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, you know, again, there were, there were a couple of sort of bedrock ideas. You know, one of them that I already mentioned was that sort of Philip was more in love with Elizabeth at the beginning than she was with him. That was actually a suggestion of John Landgraf, the, the president of the FX Network, and uh, you know that was an idea that created a sort of endless amount of of interesting story. And in the same vein, the idea that Philip had sort of fallen for America and and was able to see its good side and even love it, whereas to Elizabeth, you know, it, it was more a more black and white issue that the United States and Americans were the bad guys. And it's not that she never could appreciate or enjoy anything here, but it, that didn't mean anything to her. She she was locked in the struggle in a way that, that prevented that. So that created a lot of interesting uh, conflict between them and, and anxiety, I think, for both of them as well.
0: So these two spies, Philip and Elizabeth and Stan Beeman, their FBI agent friend, end up at the end in a parking garage. By this time, Stan knows who they are and what they really are, but he lets them go. Nobody died in the final episode. Why did you do that? Uh, is it because you were leaving the door open to a sequel or is it the way you think it would have gone?
1: Uh, well, it definitely was not about a sequel. There will not ever be a sequel. And in a way, I think we you know, tried to wrap the story up in a way that, Kind of made it clear this was this was the end. Um, I think it was for the second thing that you know we we Joel and I spent a lot of time thinking about this and and asking exactly the question you asked, which is how would it really go? And in a way, you have to fight your own. You have to fight certain tendencies because the expectation in you know television or drama in general is very strong that you're going to end up with somebody getting killed or some kind of a shootout. And we ran through all those scenarios in our heads, but we didn't like them. And they felt sort of expected and obvious and not quite true to our characters. And the idea that at the end of the day, this kind of odd, surprising friendship that Philip and Stan had built was going to be the controlling factor in their destiny at that point felt exactly in keeping with with how we felt about the whole series.
0: In fact, the FBI agent Stan, the best friend of Philip, is asked to raise the couple's young son, Henry, and then the daughter Paige stays behind in America also. To do what?
1: You know, I I think, I don't think anybody can answer that question. I, I can say that, you know, I don't think she stayed by to do anything. I think she stayed back because she was so horrified and hurt by her parents and she didn't want to go with them but i think part of those final shots of her are kind of an acknowledgement that that to do what is very unanswerable at that point and also not necessarily going to i mean maybe she'll pull herself together and maybe she won't i mean that she's she's been put under a, a almost unthinkable psychological burden
0: but she helped her mother spy
1: she did yeah she did because isn't that what we do we do what our mothers want us to do and what our mothers expect us to do as and a teenager was, I don't think so <laughs> well, you know what there you can go two different ways you can rebel or you can toe the line um, so
0: what does she do when she stays in America? does she still spy or does she become an American college student?
1: Well she can't spy she can't spy anymore because the FBI knows about her parents so spying is out okay. um, but whether or not she will Uh, go to college or drink yourself into oblivion or go into therapy or who knows. Probably all the above. Elizabeth and
0: Philip returned to Russia, a country they not only don't know really well anymore, it's grown foreign to them because of the freedoms they have enjoyed in the United States. And this is 1988, four years before the breakup of the Soviet Union. What do you suppose would have happened to them in real life?
1: I don't like to speculate about it because I feel like, you know, as you just described, they returned home to a home. They didn't know anymore and they were, and and how they were going to manage that and what they were going to do. I want to leave up to the, you know, viewer's imagination without any uh, ideas getting into their heads from, from my own thoughts. Also, to be honest, I don't think about that. I, I, you know, these characters were, as close to living people for me as was possible. And yet my imagination shuts off at the end of the show. Uh, It just, it just does. I just don't carry them forward past that point in time.
0: And so is this the final espionage type series you'll do, or do you think you'll do another one?
1: Dan, I can't tell you, you know, Joel and I talk about this a lot because You know, it is a sort of obvious direction for us to do another one. But I think we both, at the very least, want a break and uh, maybe a permanent one. (laughs) We'll have to see.
0: How does that work with the two of you collaborating? I mean, do you go into a room and start one of you typing and the other one's talking? Or how does that work, the two of you doing it?
1: We tend to, uh, at least, you know, before COVID, we would take a lot of long walks and walk and walk and talk and talk. We also, you know, had a terrific team of writers, and we would walk with them or sit in a writer's room with them and talk and talk and talk and talk. And uh, we would sort of break stories that way and and come up with challenges for the characters and figure out what they were going to do. And then there's a, you know, pretty specific process we had where you would, you know, make something called a beat sheet where you put down the moments in the story, the big things that happen in the story, and you, you know, most episodes of Americans had a couple stories going on at once. So you'd have a beef with this story and that story. And then once you've got that, you kind of fill it out and turn it into an outline, which is really a scene by scene telling of the script. And then once you really have a full outline, we would sit down, it would always felt to us like most of the work was done. And then we just had to write the script, which was uh, really truly was the easy part. It's not that it was easy, but adding, di- breaking a story is a lot harder than writing dialogue. And uh, we would, You know, when Joel and I were writing a script, we did it all together. We were always, we did every moment together. We were barely apart for those six years or really the years since.
0: And then you say you had writers. So did you not write all the scripts?
1: That's right. Generally, Joel and I wrote the first and last uh, episodes and our team of writers wrote the ones in the middle.
0: So now you uh, is Breckman Rodeo what you're working on now? This show about young rodeo riders in Cheyenne, Wyoming.
1: That was a project that we did work on after the Americans, but it didn't uh, it didn't go forward. So that is no longer no longer on the table. So what's next for you? We got we had a couple things we're we're planning. I, I can't I can't say too much except I'll tell you there's there's a thing we're working on now that we're pretty optimistic about about a therapist. That we think might uh, might in the not too distant future turn into a show.
0: And will will you do any feature length movies or? There's really more of the creativity is on TV right now.
1: Yeah, I think we're TV. I mean, speaking for myself, I can't speak for Joel on this, but I feel like more of a TV guy. I haven't had a big impulse to to write movies. Um, and we also, you know, we, we have a, we work for FX, which is a television network. So we're there. We're there to make television.
0: Will you ever do a show based in Chicago or filming in Chicago?
1: I would love to. I don't have any, you know, plans to do so, but what a pleasure it would be to to get to shoot something there.
0: Any storylines in mind?
1: For Chicago, uh, not yet. Not yet.
0: Well, I can only hope. And I'm very disappointed, I have to say, that you're not going to bring back The Americans. I loved it. Uh, Congratulations on on a wonderful, wonderful series. We look forward to seeing what you do next, and we'll be cheering you on from Chicago. Joe Weisberg, thank thank you you so very much for joining us, sir.
1: Thanks, Dan. It was great talking to you. Take care.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail.